Welcome back to our study on the kingdom of God. And this evening, if you want to turn in your Bibles, our main passage will be in Jeremiah chapter 29. Uh, But as we get into this, a little bit of a refresher that will lead into our subject for this evening, which is kingdom exiles. Uh, But all along through this study, we've been talking about the idea that there are two kingdoms and one king uh, who is God, who rules over these two kingdoms. The one kingdom is the common kingdom that governs uh, all mankind, and the other kingdom is the kingdom of heaven or the redemptive kingdom that governs uh, those people who are in covenant relationship to God via the, the covenant of grace or the new covenant. So two, king, two kingdoms, one king, or two covenants, one Lord. And the, the issue that we wrestle with is that we, are, as believers, are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but we live uh, among the nations here on earth in the common kingdom. And so how do we navigate uh, being citizens of two kingdoms? And so that's the question that we've been trying to answer. And so a few weeks ago, we looked at the idea of uh, being pilgrims on the earth, particularly in the lives of the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac, and what that means for us to be pilgrims, knowing that our eternal home is in the new heavens and the new earth, and so that this life is but temporary. Last week, uh, we considered the idea of being a holy nation. So we looked at ethnic Israel, national Israel in the Old uh, Testament under the Mosaic Covenant as a holy nation. Uh, And so then this week we're going to be looking at the idea of being exiles. Uh, So last week as we looked at national Israel, what we saw was is that they were a particular people called by God uh, and established in a special covenant relationship with him via the the, uh, Mosaic Covenant in which he gave to them laws to govern their life together as a nation. And so we talked about the three divisions of the law, the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments, the ceremonial law, which related to their temple worship, and those aspects pointed forward to Christ and have been fulfilled in Christ's final sacrifice, and the judicial law that governed their societal life together in the land. And so then we further said that that moral law can be equated to what is sometimes in theological circles called natural law. That is the law that was written on Adam's heart at creation, that all mankind have a sense that murder is wrong, that adultery is wrong, that theft is wrong, that natural law. And that the ceremonial and judicial law, however, were what we called positive laws. Those were laws that were given by special revelation, and you couldn't know them any other way other than through the scriptures. God spoke and said, do it this way. But we we talked about the judicial laws of Israel and what our confession calls their general equity. And so how do we take a look at those judicial laws, work backward from them to the moral law that they're applying in the life of national Israel, and then work forward to how do we apply that in the life of the church as a holy nation. So that was what we did last week. But what happens is, is this holy nation of Israel ends up going into exile. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon conquers Israel. God sends him to do this work for their violation of the Mosaic law. And so Israel, as a holy nation, is taken into exile, into Babylon. And so if we look at Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 and 2, uh, we get introduced to this idea. 
It says, now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. This happened after Jeconiah the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. So Jeremiah the prophet is sending a letter to those who have been taken captive, taken exile out of the promised land into the foreign land, this foreign land of this conquering nation of Babylon. Uh, and so Israel, this holy nation, God's special people are now in exile. They're still covenant people in relationship to God in a, in a way that is special and distinct from the way other peoples of the world were in relationship to him. But they're no longer in the land that was promised and governed by that covenant they were in. And so the question is, is there anything here that we can learn as Christians from their life uh, in exile. Well, if we turn to the book of Peter in the New Testament, I'm just going to look at two verses here. Uh, but Peter's first letter that he writes, uh, he uses some interesting language. And we've looked at some of this uh, before when we talked about the idea of being pilgrims on the earth. Peter used some of that language as well. But in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, he addresses the letter and he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims or the sojourners of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's using the language of dispersion, which is those who have been spread out or sent into exile from their own homeland. Well, at the end of his letter, once he closes the letter, He's written it to the, these people who are in this dispersion. But then as he closes it, he says, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Well, he's not actually in Babylon. Peter's in Rome. So he's using the language of the exile, of the dispersion, of Babylon. He's, he's picking up on this language of the Old Testament exile and applying it to the church. And so there are other passages in the New Testament that would kind of corroborate that idea that because we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven and our eternal home is in the new heavens and the new earth, but that's not where we currently live. We're, in a sense, in exile uh, from our homeland. And so we can learn from them. We are a covenant people in special relationship to God, but we're not in that promised land of our inheritance that is yet to come. We're living in the nations of the common kingdom, whether that be Babylon, Rome, the United States of America, whatever it is. We're governed by pagan rulers. Israel and Babylon was governed by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Peter and Rome was governed by the Roman emperor, who might have been uh, several different emperors in that first century, but Nero would have been probably the worst of them. Uh, we're governed by pagan rulers, quite frankly, even here in America at this time. So how are a special covenant people supposed to live in exile like this? Israel and Babylon, the church in Rome, the church in America or in Kenya or wherever we find ourselves in, in today's world. Now, we do have a somewhat unique position in the history of the church living in a constitutional republic that is supposed to be governed by the people and not necessarily by 
a monarch, a king, or a tyrant of some sort. So that's a little bit different than maybe what we find here where they're governed by Nebuchadnezzar, but that's something we'll deal with in a few weeks. Uh, but this idea of the church being in exile, uh, I've got a quote here from a guy named Lee Beach who wrote a, a book called The Church in Exile, and he defines life in exile in this way. He says, exile is the experience of knowing that one is an alien and perhaps even in a hostile environment where the dominant values even run counter to one's own. So that's what happens. The children of Israel find themselves in Babylon in exile. The dominant values of the culture in Babylon are different than the values that they should have had, at least, under the Mosaic Covenant in Israel. We find ourselves as Christians living in the cultures of this world where the dominant values we now find are often at odds with what our values should be if they're built on biblical principles. So I just want to look at about the first 11 verses of Jeremiah 29 uh, and talk about their life in exile in this letter that Jeremiah writes to them. So first, uh, he says, Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. So the prophet Jeremiah sends a letter, and he is speaking God's word to God's people, uh, but particularly he is addressing it to their spiritual leaders, the elders, the priests, the prophets, and then all the people that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away. In verse 2, he says, This happened after Jeconiah, the king and queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. So here he's talking about the kind of the ruling class, uh, the kings, princes, uh, the craftsmen. They've all been taken away. And so, you know, the generation that he's talking about here, it might be helpful to remind ourselves who this is, Daniel chapter 1 Verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. He brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Uh, and then he ends up taking princes and, and craftsmen from the land of Judah back to uh, Babylon, and of course, Daniel is one of those. And so Daniel is one of these men who has been carried away captive into Babylon. And Jeremiah is writing this letter to those who have found themselves now living in the capital city of a foreign country that has conquered uh, their land. So then he says in verse 3, the letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, so the king in Jerusalem sent some representatives to Babylon. He's kind of a, a king there in Jerusalem who's ruling under the authority now of Nebuchadnezzar. And so his uh, messengers that he sent carried this letter for Jeremiah to give to the spiritual leaders of the people who are there in captivity in Babylon. And so here's the beginning of the letter in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Key point in this verse is that God caused them to be carried away captive. 
this was not something that happened outside of God's will. It didn't catch God by surprise. He's sovereign over this. Uh, and so what, what are we to learn from that? Well, God is sovereign over the fact that we live in America and that other believers live in Zambia or wherever they happen to live. Wherever we're born, wherever we live as Christians in this world, God is sovereign over that. He has appointed the times and the places where we would live, who would be the rulers in the country that we lived in. And if they are find themselves living under tyranny, under oppression from Nebuchadnezzar and from the Babylonians, this was part of God's plan. God planned that for them, uh, and so they are to submit themselves to God's will, to be content in the circumstances in which they find themselves, uh, and to rest in the knowledge that God is in control. Further down in the letter, in verse 7, he reiterates this point uh, when he tells them to seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. I have caused you to be carried away captive. So God has done this. Uh, This is God's will for them that they endure these circumstances. And of course, we see numerous texts in the New Testament instructing us as believers to learn contentment uh, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. But verse 5 is where it begins to get really interesting. He tells them, build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit. So what is he telling them to do? Build houses and dwell in them? Plant gardens and eat their fruit? Well, first of all, you know, dwelling implies the passage of time. Uh, planting a garden and eating the fruit of it means you've got to wait for the growth and the harvest to come. In other words, they're going to be there for a while. Uh, this exile into Babylon is not a temporary thing that they should expect immediate relief from. Uh, They're going to be there for a while, uh, and so they are to settle in, as it were. And so when we think about our lives uh, here on earth as believers in the new covenant, uh, are we to to settle in? Well, we already discussed a few weeks ago the idea of viewing ourselves as pilgrims, and this world is not our home. We're looking forward to our eternal home. But does that mean that we sell everything we have and we sit around expectantly waiting, you know, Christ is coming back any time now, so we should be ready for that, right? Uh, I recently read a book uh, that related the story of uh, a man who was so expectant for the return of Christ that he actually did. I can't remember his name now. Paul will know. It's the guy that wrote, It Is Well With My Soul. Yeah. So, you know, he wrote that song after a couple of his children were killed in a uh, naval accident, maritime accident. Um, And then later, he had another daughter or two that died later from some fever or something. So him and his wife sold everything they had, which they had lost a lot of it by then anyway, but they took the remaining child or two and moved to Jerusalem because they thought Christ was going to return and that was where he was coming. So they moved to Jerusalem to just kind of sit there and wait for him to come back. Well, that's not what, Dan, what Jeremiah told the captives in exile to do, just sit and wait because God's going to bring you back to the land. No, they were to build houses, plant gardens, that sort of thing. So what are we to do as Christians? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22, Paul is giving the church in Corinth their instructions about the Lord's Supper and about how they're doing it wrong. And one of the things he says to them is, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? 
he assumes that they own homes in Corinth, this Roman city. He's not instructed them to sell their homes and, and sit around expectantly waiting for Christ to come back the next day. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul instructs the Thessalonians. He says that they, he, that they should aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we have commanded you. So they're to work with their hands, to live a quiet, peaceable life. In 2 Thessalonians 3.12, he gives them instructions very similar to what Jeremiah just gave to the exiles. He tells them, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. So they're to work. They're to eat their own bread. They're to plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. They're to build houses and dwell in them. Uh, They're to go about the ordinary, common aspects of human life on planet Earth, the things that we would expect all humans to engage in. But then in verse 6, he tells them here in Jeremiah 29, take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished. So you can see now that Jeremiah's expectations he's setting for them of the length of their captivity and exile is more than just a few years, it's generations. They're to have sons and and daughters and grandchildren even. They're to get married and raise families. Uh, They are to engage in uh, this life of raising families. Well, what happens in the New Testament? Well, Paul, writing to Timothy tells Timothy that there's a danger that some are going to forbid such things. And so he says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So we're not to forbid people to marry. Uh, This is a normal, common activity of mankind that we would get married and raise families. Um, In 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 14, uh, no, I've got that wrong. Oh, 5, verse 14. Uh, He says, Therefore I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity for the avatary to speak reproachfully. So, This idea that Christians should get married and raise families is found throughout the New Testament. We see it in 1 Corinthians 7 where we're told that we should marry in the Lord. Uh, In Hebrews 13, 4, we're told that the the marriage bed should be held in honor among all people. Uh, So we are to engage in this uh, process of raising families, getting married and raising families. And so if you think about it, um, this idea is not specific to the Mosaic Covenant. It's not specific to the New Covenant. This is part of the Noahic Covenant. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This was one of the commands that was given to Noah after the flood. And so what Jeremiah is telling the exiles to do as they live in exile is to engage in the common activities of the common kingdom just as their neighbors are doing now. They're going to do those common activities, but they're going to do them 
differently than how their neighbors do. Who you marry is going to be different, right? We are to marry in the Lord. How you raise your kids is going to be different. We're to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So there are going to be things about how we do these common activities that are different than our unsaved neighbors, but these are activities that are common cultural activities of the common kingdom. So just because we're in exile doesn't mean we disengage from the world. Then in verse 7, he says, And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. And this is really uh, the key verse. What does he mean by telling the exiles who have been carried into captivity in Babylon that they are to seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive? So if they're in Babylon, the capital city of the Babylonian Empire, they're to seek the peace of that city or the shalom of that city, the peace, the prosperity, the, the well-being, the wholeness of that city. What does it mean to seek that peace? Well, if we go back to the Noahic Covenant, there's an interesting thing here that that word seek is used in the Noahic Covenant, that same Hebrew word. It's used in Genesis chapter 9, verse 5, where God is describing uh, the terms of the Noahic Covenant and how justice is to be served in the Noahic Covenant. And God says, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. So the same Hebrew word that's translated as seek in Jeremiah 29 is used three times here in Genesis 9 verse 5. It's translated first as demand, translated twice more as require. So God is demanding uh, justice. He's demanding a reckoning. He's requiring uh, that if somebody commits murder, that their life will be forfeit. He is requiring that. Well, how is that going to happen? Well, God there in the Noahic Covenant establishes the idea of human government, that by man his blood will be required, uh, and that the magistrate does not bear the sword in vain, right? So they're going to uh, seek out the one who committed that crime and punish them. That's the idea there. This same uh, Hebrew word is used again in Psalms chapter 9, Verse 20, or verse 12, Psalm 9, verse 12. Um, we'll, we'll read verses 11 and 12. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. So here it's translated as avenges. He avenges blood. It's related to that idea there in Genesis 9, 5. That is, he hunts down the one who has offended. Uh, And so that's how this word uh, is being used. And Jeremiah actually uses the word again in verse 13, Jeremiah 29, 13, when he tells the Israelites then, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. So there's our word again twice, seek and search. When we search for the Lord with all our heart, when we seek for him, when we hunt him down, so to speak, uh, that's, that's the concept. So Jeremiah is telling them, as they live in exile in Babylon, they are to actively search for, hunt down, seek out the peace of this foreign city that they live in. 
city of Nebuchadnezzar, who conquered them, who carried them away captive. They are to hunt down, actively work towards finding ways to contribute to the shalom, the peace and the prosperity of this nation that they now find themselves inhabiting as exiles. Now that's, that's a pretty tough thing to demand of them. But then he goes on and he says not only are they to do that, but they are to pray to the Lord for it. They are to pray that the Lord would grant peace and wholeness and prosperity to Babylon where they are living as exiles. Calvin comments on this verse and he says, God not only forbids them to be seditious, but he would have them to obey from the heart so that God might be a witness to their willing subjection and obedience. He was not satisfied with only external efforts, but he would have them to pray to God that all things might turn out prosperously and happily to the Babylonian king, even to the end of their exile. So you see what Calvin is saying. He's saying they've been carried away as captives, exile into Babylon, and they are not to be seditious. They're not to be undermining the peace of Babylon because they want to return to the promised land. God sent them there. This is the place that he has them until his appointed time for them to return. And therefore, they are to live there in peace. They're to seek the peace of that city where they live, not to try and undermine it, not to work against Nebuchadnezzar, but rather to pray for him and to actively seek to be good citizens of this kingdom that they now find themselves living in. And he says, in its peace, you will have peace. Their life as exiles is now so bound up with this nation that they live in that they will only have peace in this life if they seek the peace of the city where they live. Well, is this something that carries over into our lives as Christians under the new covenant? Well, I think that it is. I mean, first of all, if we go back to a passage that we've looked at multiple times already in this study, which is Romans 13, What does Paul tell us in Romans 13, verse 1? Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So he's telling us the same as what Jeremiah told them. God carried you away captive. Paul's saying whatever authority you live under, whether it's Rome, the United States, North Korea, wherever it is, Those authorities exist because God raised them up to be an authority. And then he says in verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. Those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So Christians who find themselves living in the nations of this world are to live to the best of their ability at peace in those nations as good citizens. Paul goes further in his letter to Timothy and he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And then in verse 2 he says, For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. He's saying the same thing Jeremiah said to the exiles in Babylon. Pray for your the, your." civil governors who rule over you. Pray for them so that you can live in a quiet, peaceable life. Seek the good of the nation of the common kingdom in which you find yourself living, for in its peace you will have peace. We're forbidden 
by Romans 13 from being seditious and were commanded by 1 Timothy to pray for wholeheartedly that God would grant peace to our rulers, whether that be a thug dictator in North Korea or a thug dictator in the United States. We're to pray that God would grant peace to the nation that we live in. Then in verse 8, interestingly, he says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you have caused to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. So he's saying they've got some prophets, some, some the diviners. It's interesting, He first he calls them prophets and then he calls them diviners, which is not really a compliment. So he's in, in essence saying these are false prophets. He says, I didn't send them. Whatever they're saying to you is not from God. They're false prophets. And what are they telling them? Well, if, if we read in context here in Jeremiah, we would see that they were telling the people, this exile will be short. It'll be two years and you'll be back in the land. And, and God's saying, no, that's not what it's going to be like. They don't know what they're talking about. Well, it's interesting. If we then turn over to Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus is speaking, the parallels between Matthew 24 and Jeremiah 29 are very interesting. In verse 8, he says, Don't listen to these false prophets who are telling you your captivity will be over soon. They don't know what they're talking about. Matthew 24, verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. Don't listen to those false prophets. In verse 9, Jeremiah had, God had said through Jeremiah, I didn't send them. They're false prophets. Here in Matthew 24, verse 24, For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Don't believe them. They're false prophets. If people start setting a date for when Christ is going to return, that's no different than the prophets in Babylon telling the people giving them a false date of when God would return them to the promised land. That was not God's plan. God had a timeline for when he would return them to the promised land. In verse 10 of Jeremiah 29, keep your finger in Matthew, he says, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are complete at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. So God had a plan, 70-year plan not the plan that the false prophets were giving them. So Jesus says in Matthew 24, don't listen to them if they tell you that I've returned or if they set a date for when I'm going to return. They don't know because he says in verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. It's God's plan. We are exiles here on this earth. When will Christ come to establish the kingdom? We don't know. Could be today, could be tomorrow, could be 70 years from now, could be 700 years from now. We don't know. God knows. It is his plan. It is his timing. And so if people start saying, here's 88 reasons why Christ is going to return in 1988, they're wrong. They don't know that. God knows. And so we're not to listen to them any more than the exiles were to listen to these false prophets in Babylon. In verse 11, Jeremiah then says, or God speaking to them, says, For I know the thoughts I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is a popular verse. You've probably seen it on a t-shirt or a sewn onto a throw pillow. Um, 
interesting when they do that, they never include verse 10 that talks about the 70 years of exile in Babylon. Uh, but, you know, there is a principle here that applies. God has a plan. They're in exile in Babylon for multiple generations for 70 years. They are to live as though they are settled in that land of Babylon, but they are to do so, building houses and dwelling in them, planting gardens and eating the fruit of them, getting married, raising families, having kids and grandkids. They are to do so, but they are to do so with a hope and an expectation of what God is going to do in the future because he does have a plan for returning them to the land. He says in verse 12, Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. So they're to live peaceful, quiet lives in Babylon, in exile, seeking the peace and the good of Babylon where they live, but they are to do so with this expectant hope of a future return to the promised land. Christians, in the same way, are to live in this world, but with an expectant hope for a future coming of the kingdom. In 1 Thessalonians, which we've already, I've already looked at once tonight, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, where Paul told the Thessalonians that they were to aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. So here's telling them, build houses, dwell in them, plant gardens, eat the fruit of them, get married, raise kids, live a quiet, peaceable life. But then in verse 13, he says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So as they live in exile in Thessalonica, building houses, planting gardens, raising families, they're to do so with an expectant hope of the return of Christ, the coming of the kingdom, and their eternal inheritance in the kingdom. They were to enjoy the life of the common kingdom the same as their neighbors did, not to be seditious and raise a commotion there in Babylon, not to be discontent with the circumstances that God had put them in, not to strive even by their own effort to bring about a return to the promised land. Rather, they were to await God's timing in reliance upon his grace alone for their return to the promised land. In the same way, Christians live in exile in this world. We can't bring the kingdom. We're dependent on Christ to bring the kingdom. And so we are to wait with patience for that day that the Father knows and has appointed when Christ will return and establish the kingdom. And we will inherit uh, that kingdom which he has prepared for us. Verse 11 there in Jeremiah 29, that 
verse that's so popular. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. It reminds me of this verse that we've talked about quite a bit in the last few weeks. Romans 8:28 and we know that in all that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose all things including exile whether that's in Babylon Rome or wherever Christians find themselves where God has put them God is working out his perfect will in our lives wherever we are I want to share with you a longer quote this is from uh, Carl Truman, he's a uh, professor of church history and a pastor in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And this is from uh, an article he wrote in 2014 uh, on a website called First Things. And I have the link if anybody is interested. It's a quite a lengthy article, but it's a very good read. Uh, and he's talking about this idea of the church in exile, particularly addressing uh, the situation that the church in America finds itself facing. And interestingly, he wrote this nine years ago. Uh, but this is what some of what he says in the article. Uh, and he's, what he's trying to do is to give people hope that even in the situation we find ourselves facing in America, where, uh, as this quote from Lee Beach that I read earlier says, we find ourselves in a hostile environment where the dominant values of the culture run counter to our own, that in the midst of that, Truman says, there, there's hope to be had, particularly in the Reformed Christian faith, not in Roman Catholicism. He spends some time talking about why Roman Catholicism won't have hope to offer people, why uh, broadly evangelical Christianity in America uh, that is too shallow to offer people any hope. But he, he spends a good deal of time about why uh, Reformed faith will give people hope in exile. And so he says this, he says, it's not surprising that Reformed Christianity equips us well for exile because it was itself forged in a time of exile, often by men who were literal exiles. Indeed, the most famous Reformed theologian of them all, John Calvin, was a Frenchman who found fame and influence as a pastor outside his homeland in the city of Geneva. The Pilgrim Fathers of New England knew the realities of exile and the conditions that it imposed upon the people only too well. Winthrop's famous comment about being a city on a hill was not a statement of messianic destiny, but a reminder to the colonists of the fact that their lives as exiles were to be lived out in the glare of hostile scrutiny. Exile demanded that they have a clear and godly identity. For those in physical exile, for those suffering for their faith, for those despised and marginalized by the world around them, the knowledge that history is under God's control provides encouragement. However weak the church appears to be, however many setbacks it faces, the end of history is already determined in Christ. It's a great article. If anybody's interested, I'd be happy to share the link with you. Uh, but that's, that's the basic idea, that as we live as exiles in this world, uh, we do so with an expectant hope of the coming of the kingdom and our eternal home there. So next week, we're going to begin some specific applications at looking at, okay, well, how do we then uh, apply this? How do we raise our families in the common kingdom in a way that is distinct from how the rest of humanity does it? How do we live our, work out our jobs or engage in politics? So the next few weeks are going to be uh, some specific application to those areas. But let's close in a word of prayer.